Okay, my friend. Um, so to start off, I figured we would kind of start all the way back, just get some background context. So uh, what's your what's your backstory? Where where are you from? Where you grew up? What's what what's your what's the beginning story for Ali Edmund? Let's see. That's a long, complicated story, but <laughs> the the basics are: I was born in Egypt, uh, lived there until the age of about five or six, um, moved to Syracuse, New York, um, where my parents were pursuing higher education, and uh, spent the majority of my formative years in Syracuse, about probably 12 years. Um, at the time, my dad was an OBGYN. Um, since he was a foreign medical grad, he had to repeat his residency in upstate New York. And so after he finished, he got a job offer in Rock Springs, Wyoming, of all places, to expedite um, the process of us getting a green card and becoming U.S. citizens. Um, so I did my senior year of high school in Rock Springs, Wyoming. That was a culture shock. And then I uh, want, knew I wanted to be back east for college. I went to Yukon for four years. And then I moved to Salt Lake City after college to be closer to family because um, my dad had some health issues while I was in college. So I felt like I wanted to be closer. But I wasn't going to go to Wyoming. So I picked the closest big city, Salt Lake, and they visit me on the, the weekends. And I stayed there for medical school. And... I am the newest uh, newest community member of the Phoenix community, and I am uh, very excited to start my residency. So, you, your your dad and, and and your parents were involved in in medicine uh, your whole life. So, is that something that influenced you and in, in your interest and in, in your ultimate decision in, in trying to go to medical school, or what other ideas, dreams did, did you have as a kid? Uh, growing up here in the States about what you, you wanted to do? It definitely always influenced me. Having that constant exposure to parents who were physicians, you start to realize, okay, wow, they work long hours. Wow, they, um, they're really smart people. They're dedicated to education. So I always had that exposure, um, but they, they almost like pushed it down your throat like in Arab culture, it's like, oh, you're going to be a doctor, an engineer, or, you know, a dentist, some, something high up. And it, it's to the point where you get sick of it. And it's like, you know what, I'm going to do something else. And in my situation, I had interests outside of the sciences. I was interested in music. I was interested in uh, writing. Um, and when I got older, I started cutting hair. So I became interested in barbering. And... I wanted to pursue those things, but my parents always, um, especially my mom, actually, she always scoffed it off as, oh, that's just a side hobby, side hobby. You need financial stability. Um, you need to be like a doctor, and then you can do those things on the side. Um, anywho, so when I went to college, I went to college in Yukon, and I went as a pre declared pre-med, but I knew I wasn't going to do pre-med. I just declared pre-med because um, I knew I wanted to do dentistry at the time. And one of the reasons I chose UConn was because they had one of the top dental schools on the East Coast. 
And I figured if I went there, it would improve my chances of getting in. And the pre-medical courses and the pre-dental courses are pretty similar. Um, anywho, around that time, my, my sophomore year of college, my dad had a major stroke, um, almost took his life. He was in the hospital for two months. Um, and it was during the winter break of my sophomore year. So I, I was there in Wyoming when it happened. And I felt helpless. You know, all I could do was sit back and watch. And I, I remember being really impressed with how my dad's entire medical care team worked together to, to kind of nurse him back to life. And, and I knew I wanted to be a part of that. And um, that's when I made the decision to switch and commit to medicine because uh, I felt a need to give others the care I wish I could have given my father. Damn. I, I, I feel like I must have known that, but I didn't consciously remember that, that that was kind of the inflection point for you, you know, seeing, seeing your, the help your dad received. So did you have some aversion to going into medicine because of how much your parents kind of tried to shove it down your throat as a kid? I definitely did. I was the type of kid who my, my family all had iPhones. I had a Blackberry. You know, they all did. They went one way. I went the other. I just I wanted to forge my own path. And in doing mm. that, I had to push medicine away. Um, I, did, I, did, I never took it seriously. I wasn't a good, you know, high school student. Um, I played around a lot. Like I, I wasn't committed to the idea of medicine mm -hmm. until all that happened to my dad. Mm. And that kind of inspired you, changed you. To, to kind of pursue medicine and just seeing the impact medicine could have? See the impact medicine could have. Um, but I, I always say this, like, science saved my dad's life. Okay? But it was my mother and his family who, who stayed by him each day who saved his soul. So mm. it's a combination of the two that makes medicine this this beautiful thing. So thinking about medicine in that way, kind of the science, but also the family human aspect of it, how has that kind of shaped or informed your, your view on medicine and, and kind of what you want to do to medicine as you kind of matriculated into medical school for yourself? I think if you don't enjoy the humanistic side of medicine, then you have picked the wrong career. People are like, oh, I'm going to go into medicine. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to, you know, have a nice car. I'm going to get all this respect. Sure. But if you wanted to be rich, there are easier ways to do it than through the hell that we go through for medical training to get to becoming a doctor. Um, it's, we are injected into people's lives during some of their most vulnerable moments and, and we're in positions where we talk to them about sensitive topics, um, life and death matters. And it is, it is a responsibility I don't take lightly. And I cannot save everyone. I have come to that realization. When I first started med school, I was like, I'm going to save the world. That's not true. I cannot save everyone. 
But if in my moments with my patients, I can give them the best care, I can make them feel heard, I can make them feel seen, I can make them feel validated, then I have done my job. I have humanized the care that I am giving them. And th that to me is, is beautiful medicine. Do you, do you have any particular instances or, or moments where you've kind of experienced that so far in, in, in your in your career to this point? Of course, I've had a lot. And um, I'll, I'll, the most recent one I can remember is I was on an inpatient rotation. Inpatient means the, the patient is hospitalized. And mm -hmm. this um, gentleman comes in, he's a young guy, uh, 51 years old, and his bilirubin, so that's kind of the stuff that gets you jaundice and makes your skin look yellow was through the roof when he came in this guy looked like a simpson character and the number one cause of high bilirubin is liver issues his liver numbers were messed up so we ran a battery of tests but everything was coming back normal we, we couldn't figure out what it was eventually after two weeks of him in the hospital you know we figured out this is autoimmune hepatitis. The body is attacking the liver. We don't know why, but his body is attacking his own liver. I used to round on this man. Rounding means going and talking to the patient every morning, seeing how the, the evening and the night before went. I would talk to him every day, and even though he was sick as a dog, he had the most positive, upbeat attitude. He constantly made jokes. He asked about my life. I asked about his. He had a muffin for me every single day. You know, he had a joke ready for me, a new one that he wanted to try out every single day. It reached the point where I was trying to get my work done quickly in the morning so I can spend more time with him. And eventually they put him up on the transplant list. He gets rejected from the transplant list because a few months prior, he had recreationally used um, cocaine, I believe, one time. And as a result of that, he was not going to get a new liver. And it broke my heart because, you know, this is, he was such a good guy. He was, he had so much life to live and was deserving of a new liver. Anywho, one day I come in, I see his name's not on our list. And I'm like, where, where, where is he? Where'd he go? And the team's like, oh, he went to the ICU, you know, his heart stopped overnight, you know, he collapsed, things like that. And my attending, my senior doctor comes in in the morning and she's like, Ali, you know, the patient wants to see you in the ICU. You're the only person he wants to see. And I said, damn. So we finished our rounds for the morning and then immediately I, I grabbed my stuff and I went to the ICU to check on him. And there he was. He looked awful. He was so sick. The ICU doctor comes in while I'm chatting with um, the patient. And he's asking the patient, you know, tell me what happened. And the patient looks at the ICU doc and he's like, you can ask my doctor. N nodding to me. He referred to me as his doctor. Anywho, this was around Christmas time. And it was the last day of my rotation. And, you know, I... I, I come in to thank him and tell him it was nice to to meet him and you know tell him what he meant to me I, I got him a card and um, 
just telling him what he meant to me and his wife got me a gift um a christmas gift and i i kissed him on the forehead and i told him i love him and i'd miss him and i i'm sending positive vibes his way and he said ali when i get out of this hospital wherever you end up i'm going to come because you will be my doctor for the rest of my life and it was so like he's crying i'm crying i'm a blubbering mess and it it was so beautiful to be seen in that way anywho he he ended up dying 2 days after i i left and um he he meant a lot to me and even though we couldn't save him we i tried my best to make his last moments happy and filled with love and friendship and companionship and that 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 matters to me so i i am lucky to to do what i do and be in the position that i am i i know doctors are trained professionals and then you know you're expected to experience these type of things but at the end of the day doctors are humans too you know so how do you cope with that you know these situations where you have patients that you build a bond with and and you're pouring all your energy and your heart into trying to help them you know but then obviously sometimes it's it's you know it's beyond your your control and 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 they they pass on anyway how do you cope with those those situations like that that's that's an excellent question um the hospital and clinics it's such a busy day that sometimes there isn't time to process the the emotions we feel when interacting with patients mm. and you have to because what happens is there there's such a huge documentation burden after you see each patient you have to write notes about them and that can take hours and so you have to actively make time to think about your patients and process how they affected you and how you affected them um mm-hmm. because it's very easy to move through medicine without ever having to do that and you become cynical you become emotionally numb and you become hardened and it's not good So uh, it, it's not easy in medicine but the best doctors are the ones who actively make time for the human side go the extra mile to check on their patient make a phone call things like that was was this something you knew you were signing up for when you got into medicine or no, you kind of something i gravitated gravitated towards on my own right like in on inpatient medicine in in the hospitals you only see your patients for like 5 10 minutes a day which is not a lot cuz they were there the whole day and cuz right. you have to round on other patients you have to write notes you have to put in orders you have to put in consults for other services and so that next thing you know your whole day is gone and you've chatted with your patient for 5 minutes and it wasn't meaningful I don't right. like that system. It's one of the reasons I prefer clinic to being in the hospital. And so I go out of my way to spend longer time with my patients. I may write worse notes, right? I may not spend as much time writing and documenting. I'm willing to sacrifice that if it means spending more time with my patients. And that's something I came to terms with on my own over my years of uh kind of medical training. Is there anything else that you've encountered throughout your your education and and your training in medicine that you don't necessarily 
agree with or, or you think can be improved upon and you plan on doing differently as you get it deeper into your career? Of course. Um, uh, I did a lot of rotations in third year. There was surgery. There was internal medicine, neurology, pediatrics. And it, every specialty has a, attracts a different type of personality. And sometimes in medicine, there can be this um, social hierarchy um, where the attending physicians are on top, the residents are next, then the medical students. And you have to claw tooth and nail to just move up and get respect in that hierarchy. And it can, it can lead to, what's the word I'm looking for? Almost, it could lead to, to hazing-like experiences while trying to learn medicine. Um, and it, it's not conducive to, to good learning. And so a good attending physician will treat all members of their team equally um, he, they will not use their power to uh, humiliate anyone or uh, make anyone look bad. They, they will do it to be good teachers. And so I hope to be the attending physician who sets the mood and the bar for my team. So my residents and everyone and the med students below them, everyone, it's, it's respecting. You're seen as colleagues and equals and no one is above or below the other. So that that's something I would like to change when I um, practice my medicine. And is there thing, anything? No, go on. Uh, the other thing I was just going to add is um, ch challenging people. So the way we're taught medicine, sadly, in this country is race-based. You know, we, we're taught what's called buzzwords. If you hear, you know, the word sarcoidosis, which is a autoimmune disease, you know, you think African-Americans like that. That's how we're taught medicine in this country. It's very reflexive and it's, it's not always good. Um, there are cases where certain diseases and conditions are more prominent in different uh, people of certain backgrounds as opposed to others. That's true, but it's not the case for every patient of that background. And a lot of doctors in this country um, make the mistake of generalizing um, a condition on every single member of that, um, that group. And so uh, I, I would challenge people, for example, when we're giving our presentations, you know, a 68-year-old African-American man comes in with XYZ. Why? Like challenging people, like why did you say African American? Is that is, is that helping anything uh, in this case? Is that giving me any information? So, just checking people and uh, educating people on on um, the use of race-based medicine and trying to have it be more so individualized medicine. So, if if people are kind of siphoned by their race when they're coming in and getting diagnosed. Does that also mean that treatments tend to kind of be siphoned by people's race as well? Absolutely. I mean, um, especially for conditions such as uh, hypertension, um, black people um, will be on a different hypertension regimen than their white counterparts, 
even though sometimes um, they can have higher blood pressure than their white counterparts. Um, that never made sense to me. The other thing is um, kidney disease. Um, there is a calculator which um, on our phones that calculates kind of the level at which uh, kidney functions. And one of the markers of healthy kidney function is called creatinine. And it's, it's found in your muscles and the kidney clears it regularly. And for black people, they add a correction factor for creatinine levels because they are all assumed to have increased muscle mass. That, that is the, if you look up the literature and the theories as to why that is, that's, that's what will come up. Um, the issue is in black folks who have kidney disease and need kidney transplants, because of that correction factor, their creatinine levels will be will appear normal even though they're not, like they, their kidneys are sick. So black people in this country are not getting um, kidney, the kidney transplants that they need because of this correction factor. Um, and, and I could go on and on. There are, there are so many other conditions in which um, whites and blacks um, are, are treated differently, unfortunately, in this country. And, and what do you mean differently? I'm just kind of trying to infer here. You're referring that white people tend to get better treatment? Yes. Studies show that um, physicians uh, tend to spend longer amount uh, of time with their white patients than they do their black patients. Um, studies show that physicians are more likely to prescribe pain medication, uh, particularly opioids, to their white patients as opposed to their um, black patients. So yes, there are biases out there that um, in a lot of instances will favor white patients as opposed to black patients. Is this something that you, you know, knowing, knowing and being consciously aware of this stuff, is that something that you plan to try to address in, in, in your own career in, in any way or form? Absolutely. This, this will be race-based medicine will not be a part of my career. You know, I, I will, every patient who comes into my care and under my care will receive an individualized experiences. Humans are a product of their childhoods, their environments, the, the, the way they were socialized, both um, psychologically and physically. And so like there is so much that goes into each person, right? No, no two black people are the same the way no two white people are the same. So to offer good medicine, you, you need to hear that whole person's story. Um, and I, I just, there's no room for generalizations uh, when it comes to that stuff, especially especially generalizing on the basis of race. Right. And and then I guess I just wanted to kind of close out with just just more generally. You mentioned earlier how you have these other passions, or when you, at least when you were younger, you had these other passions as well: music, writing, uh, cutting hair. Do you what you know? How do you plan on approaching your career, you know, do you, do you want to kind of uh, incorporate your passions in other ways as well? Or, or just, you know, you, it sounds like you want to try to book the trend and go your own route with medicine. So 
Do you have any plans for doing something different that incorporates your your other passions or just well, you know, where where do you see the next thirty years of your life and, and your career going in, in medicine and, and even beyond? Of course, of course. Um so I I'm going into family medicine. I plan to practice outpatient medicine, which is clinical medicine, like just in the clinics. And, you know, family docs, we call ourselves, uh, we treat everything. We're from womb all the way to tomb. We'll treat you. And I particularly would like to work with refugees, urban underserved, um, disenfranchised patients. And the reason being is during my four years of medical school in Salt Lake, I noticed that my black and brown patients reacted to me differently than my white counterparts. They were so excited and eager and happy to have me be a part of their care team. And and I realized in that moment that as a result of my Egyptian background, I have been afforded a privilege in that people of color gravitate towards me more in the medical setting. And and I don't take that responsibility of mine lightly. And and I plan to use this um, social advantage to help me help the kind of the communities that are hurting really bad. Um, The other thing is, you mentioned it, like my passions, barbering. I, I love cutting hair and it's, it's something that is very self-soothing, very ser- therapeutic for me. And I would like to one day um, get my barbering license and bridge the worlds of barbering and healthcare, and create a space where, you know, you come into the shop to get a cut, but, you know, it's also a space where you can talk about health and check blood pressure, check diabetes, get skin checks, um, I mean, at my shop in Salt Lake, when people found out I was in medical school, I had a line of people who wanted to talk to me. You know, I, I got two people to quit vaping. I got, uh, you know, I helped a, a father um, whose son was struggling with asthma, helped his son get it under control just from a conversation. You know, a lot of young men, they want to talk about um, sex. They want to talk about STDs. Um, so giving... Uh, the space for these conversations to happen is is definitely a, a goal of mine one day as well. Fantastic. I, I look forward to it. Um, and uh, thank you for taking the time to chat. Appreciate awesome. it. And uh, keep my eyes open for, for the barbershop. Hey, Doc Shop. Doc Shop, coming to you soon. <laughs> Thanks.